Welcome to Sal on Air. I'm Ruth Dickey, Executive Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Sal on Air is a podcast of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Support for the inaugural season of Sal on Air comes from the M.J. Murdoch Charitable Trust. For more conversation and connection, join us for our 2018-19 season, featuring talks by Alice Walker, Barbara Kingsolver, Doris Kearns Goodwin, and more literary surprises. Tickets are available now at lectures.org. In this episode, we hear from Tom Hanks, who joined us at McCaw Hall in December of 2017. I had the pleasure of introducing Tom Hanks that night, and Seattle's beloved librarian, Nancy Pearl, was in conversation with the actor, who shared with us how he came to write his first book, the short story collection, Uncommon Type, his obsession with vintage typewriters, and highlights from his prolific career. Here is Tom Hanks with the librarian, Nancy Pearl. Good evening, everyone. My name is Ruth Dickey, and I have the tremendous pleasure of serving as the Executive Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures, and I am thrilled to welcome you. Oh, wow. Thanks, y'all. I'm thrilled to welcome you to our 30th anniversary season and to an evening with Tom Hanks. I know. We are so grateful to the many partners who have made this evening possible. Thanks to our presenting sponsor, the Seattle Times. Thanks to our organizational supporters, all of whom are listed in our program. And special thanks for significant support of our public programs to Four Culture, the Amazon Literary Partnership, Arts Fund, the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Glassy Baby, Nordstrom, and the Washington State Arts Commission. Let's have a round of applause for sponsors. Thanks to tonight's bookseller, University Bookstore, and last but not nearly least, yeah, thanks to all of you for being here with us tonight. Mm-hmm. The format for this evening will be a conversation between Nancy Pearl and Tom Hanks. As I'm sure you know, Nancy is a hero to book lovers everywhere for her books Book Lust and Book Crush, to her work championing books and writers, to getting all of Seattle and then cities around the globe to read the same book. Nancy is also the only librarian with an action figure and the author of the new novel, George and Lizzie. After an initial conversation, Nancy will include as many questions from all of you as possible. So if you have a question for Mr. Hanks, please write it on a question card and pass it to an usher. If you are on social media this evening, our hashtag for tonight is Sal Hanks. And now, the moment we've been eagerly awaiting. Of course, we all know Tom Hanks from his long career as an actor, writer, producer, and director, which has spanned two Oscars, four Golden Globes, and eight Emmys, and more beloved movies than I can name. But we're here tonight to celebrate Tom Hanks as an author and to celebrate his new collection of short stories, Uncommon Type. In this lovely book, the stories are as big-hearted as you might expect from Hank's movies, whether they capture a group of friends on a journey to the moon, new love, the betrayal of love, or the immortality of love. At turns funny, insightful, and poignant, these stories each feature a typewriter in some way, small or large. In the story, these are the meditations of my heart. An old man sells a typewriter to a young woman, but urges her to put it on the table in the middle of her life, saying, would you own a stereo and never listen to records? Typewriters must be used, like a boat must sail, an airplane has to fly. What good is a piano if you never play? It gathers dust and there is no music in your life. Whether Tom Hanks wrote these stories literally on typewriters, what a gift to all of us that has, he has heeded this invocation to put typewriters to use, put writing in the center of his life, to shake off the dust and bring stories and music to his life and now ours. Please join me in welcoming the hugely talented, typewriter-loving, beautiful storyteller, Tom Hanks.
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. So I guess Ruth opened the door for this question that I was going to ask you. Did you write them on a typewriter? Um, I wrote... Uh, you, I'm not insane. Be uh, honest. I, no. Um, I, I, I did not want to have to literally cut and literally paste <laughs> any of the stories. I, I wrote a lot of notes, a lot of test titles and, you know, fragments on... Because I, I have a typewriter set up everywhere. I have, I have easy access to typewriters that are pre-margined and, and all that. Um, but I only, I, I, I was in Atlanta working and uh, I always try to find the typewriter store that is in some town and wherever it is. And I bought a, uh, an electric Smith Corona Selectomatic typewriter. I had ah, that typewriter. Oh, yeah. That's With a, a cartridge that came in and out. And so I, I, I wrote a very rough and very sloppy typo-filled three or four pages on the story called A Month on Green Street. And then I came to my senses and uh, <laughs> put, brought, out the, uh, brought out the laptop, and that's, how, that's, where I did the, that's where I did the real work. But well, I have a really cool typewriter font on my laptop, if that, uh, <laughs> if, that, if, that, if that rates. I can't get any noise out of the damn thing, but at least it looks like a clunky old messy typewriter. Did you find that your background in films and playing all those different characters was a help or, or, a, or, or a hindrance in creating the characters in, in the stories in Uncommon Type? Well, you know, I've never had any other job uh, outside being a bellboy at the Oakland Hilton with Brian Wheely, who is in the house tonight. Um, other, other, there he is. Other, other than that, I've only ever been either an actor or somebody who was studying act, uh, acting or a stage manager or a stage carpenter. Um, what, what I have been able to, vine, to divine out of my responsibilities to my job is um, you must, when I say you, I mean me, but... Uh, uh, <laughs> one. You, you have to, one must uh, come to work with the entire life history of your character in your pocket. And it, if, if, it's not, if it's not something you can research and find, you do have to make it up. It is a construct because it is a sin, I think, to be an actor. If you've done the work, uh, if you showed up on time, which is not a requirement, but will be the single trait that will get you more jobs. <laughs> How is, uh, how is this kid Hanks? Oh, he's pretty good. Well, he shows up on time. Hire him. <laughs> um, know your dialogue. Know the text. There's no substitution for that. And also have an idea of what you're going to do. Um, if you do those three things, you, you can be flummoxed if you don't know why you're there or how your character ended up there. And I, I don't know when this kind of like responsibility stumbled upon me, but when it did, it is a form of all-encompassing uh, creative, uh, uh, creating a character that no, you don't have to tell anybody about it, mm -hmm. but you have to have it. So that when you have to jump out a window or yell at a dog or, uh, you know, make a make Kiss a axe out of an ice skate or something like that, you know where it's you know where it's coming from. And, and also the, what the work that we do, for the characters, that's that, but with the work that we do at, at Playtone, which is a company that we have where we make a lot of stuff, we're always, we're talking about stories all day long and trying to map them out and discover what the best media is for them, what the best venue is for them, how long the story is, because we do a lot of nonfiction and you can't do cradle to grave sometimes, you just gotta hone out a perfect week of somebody's life or an event. And together, that, that is, uh, without sort of knowing it, I, I had been preparing for a, a brand of self-discipline, I think, that came along, that, that served well when I decided to sit down on a blank screen and, and actually have to start explaining things to everybody who read it. And what was the impetus to sit down at that blank screen? I mean, did you, did, did you say, I have hubris, an idea? Hubris. Uh, hubris, ego. Um, empty mornings with nothing really to do. Oh, to keep uh, off the exercise well, machine. Yeah, the, right. the procrastination, big yeah. one there, Nancy, thank you. Um, the, uh, the, the, the desire really was the freedom 
of being able to determine what the story was and how far it went and the, the, the cadence of it. My, uh, in making films, you are, first of all, you have to go through an awful lot of other people. Mm -hmm. I've written screenplays, but screenplays are like, are, a lot of times it's just uh, like architecture. It's a blueprint um, for something that is going to be touched and altered and changed and actually improved by a myriad of people. As an actor, I go into, I go into work and I provide the director with as many different versions of of the examination of the theme as possible, and then they decide, and the score and editing and all that other stuff goes into shaping a performance that I provided the raw material for, but did not make the individual choices mm -hmm. uh, necessary. Uh, uh, so t writing a story that is going to be how long? I don't know, seven pages, 44 pages? Right. No idea. Means that I got to sit down and completely unencumbered by the economics of making a movie, uh, it's very expensive to drain Lake Michigan and fill it with marshmallows <laughs> in a motion picture. It costs you nothing to do it in a short story. Uh, and that, that economic freedom is huge. Like, well, for example, like uh, the story about the guy, uh, the, the past is important to us, a time travel movie to, yeah. uh, a time travel story to the 1939 World's Fair would, would be a prohibitively expensive movie to make. Right. It's, it's absolutely free on paper. So the, the liberating aspect of having no, no, uh, uh, no constraints on wherever the story wanted it was really actually you know, quite, quite delicious. The other part is the, you need um, not a distraction, you need some other outlet from the, the oppressive pressure of making a movie over the course of the 50 or 60 days. Um, and I, I did a lot of the writing here as to have some other outlet from the specific ongoing marathon that is performing one role in a movie. Because you have to go, you have to take it very slow and you, you have to be tense for every moment of it. You know that on Tuesday you're going to be shooting a scene that is going to ask relatively nothing of you. And the next morning you will be sh shooting literally the emotional core of the whole fucking thing. <laughs> And if you don't hit it that day, you don't have the movie. And this, you, you, it, this, is why, this, is why, this is why actors are insane, because this is why, they, this, this is why they, you find them in their underwear on the freeway at 3.30 in the morning. They're like, I don't know, I have to shoot a scene on Thursday, I can't get, I can't do it. Uh, and then you show up and you do it. Um, so uh, the, the, the being able to go to a, a different place, it's not, it, actually a lot of it was not unlike reading uh, something that stirs you because you, it was this other kind of like big massive puzzle undertaking that was, that was quite frankly a solace. So um, one of my favorite stories in the book is about this group of friends who go to the moon with the help of a lot of duct tape. Yes. Which is, a, which is a true requirement of going to the moon. Absolutely. You've got to have a lot of duct tape in order and, to make it to the moon. And two of them work for Home Depot, yes. so they get a discount. Yes. <laughs> right. Which is a, a version of, you know, bidding out the contract to the lowest, uh, to the lowest bidder. Right. And they yeah. have an advantage over the earlier astronauts because the earlier astronauts did not have Google to answer, yes. to settle arguments while yes. they were going. They actually had to use pens and papers and slide rules and things right. like that. They had to know junk. Yeah, right, right. Well, you can just enter it into your, your average laptop and, or your iPad and get all the answers you need. Come up with the answer immediately. Yeah, what, what is the delta vector one that needs in order for the force in order, and what is the, going to be the timing of the fuel burn at the translunar injection? You got to burn for 7.2 seconds. <laughs> the other guys had to write it down and slide stuff around and no physics and stuff like that. In their heads. So, <laughs> so I understand from a previous conversation that that was your that was the first story that you that you wrote. Yes, um, uh, just 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 by groans. Uh, how many people have read the book or bought it or take a look? All right, all right, all right. God bless you. Um, um, 
the, uh, um, I had actually, it came about because I had done an awful lot of reading. I was actually on vacation. Um, uh, and I had just, I just, you know the thing when you haven't read for a while and then you go off on vacation and you start reading and your, your, actual, your actual speed of reading and comprehension is about what it was when you were in seventh grade. <laughs> <clears throat> but then every day you start reading faster and faster and faster and faster till you feel like you're the, you're the incarnation of Evelyn Wood. You can, just read, <laughs> you can just read so fast and understand everything. After a really long reading jag, um, uh, I, I had read uh, these big volumes of the best writing of the New Yorker. Uh, the 30s, oh, right. by the, the decades, yeah, right. by the decades. And yeah. you're reading literally the greatest writers that ever were. And they were all stories or articles or essays that were about somewhere between, you know, 10 and, 10 and 30 pages long. And I had had this idea for a long time. Oh, you uh, had? Well, yeah, because I actually, this was one of the kind of stories that we had talked about uh, in, uh, down at the office. Um, and I, I had just, just great affection for the concept of space travel and going to the moon. And uh, I've always wanted to try to go back there as an actor, you know, in a movie, and uh, it's hard to do. Um, <laughs> you'd think they'd be overjoyed to give me the opportunity, but uh, oh, man, that Sandy Bullock in space just ruined it for everybody. Um, gravity, just, just wipe the slate clean of what you can do as far as space goes. And so I ended up writing this, this kind of story and out of that, and I wanted, to be a, I wanted to be that kind of classic number of characters. If you take a look at um, the Marx Brothers, there were four of them. The Beatles, there were four of them. Ricky, Lucy, Fred, and Ethel, there were four of them. Right. Seinfeld, George, Kramer, Elaine, there were four of them. So this, there's this, this great kind of like it's like that's you know four is you know that thing four is constant you know uh, it's the, it's called the four constant uh, and uh, and so I put together these characters and wanted them to mix and match and be a bit of a representative you know I don't think there's enough Asian characters in the world so one guy's name is Steve Wong right as opposed to Hideki Takahashi you know it's just a guy named Steve Wong and uh, M dash M dash and the, the the strongest most forceful. Uh, woman on the planet Earth uh, in the name of uh, Anna, and then the idiot non-named narrator, which I'm going to guess I would play in the course <laughs> of uh, <laughs> if it was turned into movie. But um, so I ended up like pounding this kind of thing through throughout, and it, it actually I thought when I was I had a version of it, and um, I said, well, you know, this is a I think this might be a thing. I, you know, I don't know what you do with such a thing. But uh, I know that uh, Steve Martin is, uh, he's a friend. I mean, uh, I know him pretty well. And I know that he's, he's multidisciplined. You know, he writes uh, all sorts of things. And so I sent it to him because I'm a fan of his plays and also his uh, novels or novellas. What would you call them? I think um, novels. Novels? Okay, yeah. Shop Girl. Short novels. Shop Girl's wonderful. Um, yeah. Um, and I said, hey, Steve. I sent it to him. I said, hey, is this a thing? A thing? A thing. A thing? Is this a thing? <laughs> And uh, he sent back an email that said, yeah, yeah, I think this is a thing. <laughs> Why don't I send it to my agent, which was uh, Esther Newberg, who's a legendary ICM literary agent. And uh, I, got, uh, I, got a thing, <laughs> I got an email back from her. I said, uh, and I said, hey, Steve said uh, I could send it, blah, 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 so I'm the guy that wrote it. Here's my email address. And she sent me back, and she said, the email was essentially, hmm, this might be a thing. I don't know what, <laughs> I don't know what to do with it. Let me think about it. That's, that was the email. And a couple of days later, she said, well, we can try to send it to here. We'll try this. I don't think, I don't think these people would go for it. Maybe because it's you, somebody else will run it. That turned out not to be the case. Uh, uh, and she said, well, you know, I'm just, uh, you know what? I'll just send it to the New Yorker. And I said, I will frame the rejection letter from the New Yorker, and I will put it up there. I said, see what I did once? Um, and lo and behold, they decided to, uh, I don't know why, but they decided to do it, uh, to run it at some point. And uh, I ended up uh, getting, uh, exchanging uh, letters and drafts with uh, Deborah Treisman because the New Yorker goes through it yeah. like substantially. Right. I mean, they literally were asking me about a, a, a blade of heat shield materials <laughs> and they contacted Alan Bean himself. <laughs> and I had, I had I, here's the goofiest thing in the world. 
I knew that on the Jiminy program, the ablative heat shield uh, on this Jiminy two-person space capsule uh, let out these types of noxious fumes from the heat when it landed in the water. And so there was actually this kind of like, not a, not a, not a poison gas, but there was, a, there was an unpleasant kind of thing that if you breathe it, it would make you sick. And I knew that. And so I said, that's the kind of heat shield. Uh, and I wrote in there that M Dash or Steve Wong got a little woozy because they were bleeding the noxious fumes from the ablative heat shield. And Alan Bean said, we didn't have that on Apollo. <laughs> And they couldn't have it on Apollo because Apollo came all the way from the moon. It was going like 19 times faster than they did. So what they had was an ablative heat shield that just kind of like burned off. And he said, but you know, if they want to get sick, you could say that, uh, they could say that his uh, nitrogen valve, they opened the uh, nitrogen valve too quickly. And I immediately said, I put that in. <laughs> all right. All righty, sir. Here you go. <laughs> Boom. Ready for the New Yorker. There were a few other, uh, few other fact checking things I had to do. Literally the price of a roll of duct tape from Home Depot. <laughs> they, they checked that. So we went through that and, uh, and it, it ended up getting, uh, it ended up getting uh, uh, published and I was just delighted to see Alan Bean's, I know Alan Bean, I met him back in the days of From the Earth to the Moon and Apollo 13. And I just think, I have never been able to figure out why the fourth man to walk on the moon wasn't a household name. Yeah. And Alan Bean is not, if, you, if Alan Bean walked out right now, you'd, you'd think he's the sound guy that's laying cable for you. You wouldn't think he was a guy that walked on the moon. So. And, and that came to pass, and then they asked me if I had any more. And then what did you, what? Oh, I said, how many? <laughs> <laughs> well, first I said, is there any money to be made in this? I mean, does, do you guys actually want to put out like short stories? Who buys short stories? I mean, what year is it for crying out loud? What are you gonna do? Put it in Collier's magazine, you know, the Saturday <laughs> Evening Post. And they said, no, actually, we sell. They they sell. I said, well, oh, well, all right. Well, how many do you? Uh, how many would you need? And uh, Peter Gathers, who was my agent, said fifteen. And I went, <laughs> really? Um, uh, I said, well, I got you know. I, if I I thought about it a little bit, and I think I had seven, eight, or nine, you know, and then some other ideas. And I said, how long do they need to be? It said, however long they are. I said, well, this seems like a, man, <laughs> seems like no rules are involved here. So, uh, um, I, I, so I was a year late. They wanted it in a year, but I had to explain to them I had two other full-time jobs that I was working on. Uh, and uh, we, I, just, I just began, I came up most, I started with a title um, that would try to wrap a story around a title. Um, like, for example, uh, these are the meditations of my heart. Yeah. If you, that's about a. It's kind of the story of a that mirrors my getting my first really good typewriter, and a few others. Um, and then uh, I was I was I was sort of looking for some brand of. Uh, what? Who, give me a groan for the people who actually do write and stuff like that. Writers and yeah, yeah. So you know how it is. Sometimes you just got to have some like trick in order to get you to sit down and write. You know. Yeah. You got to fake yourself out yeah. somehow. Um, and so that's when I asked Peter, I said, what if I just tried to put a typewriter in every story? Because if I got nothing else to think about, if I'm dry, I just like, where could I put a typewriter in this story? Uh, and he said, that's it. I said, why not? Take a shot. Good idea. And ended up, we, having, we started having email arguments of where a typewriter should go into a story. I don't like where you put the typewriter in this story. Well, fuck you, because I'm the writer and I'm the... Pardon my, pardon my F-bombs, Nancy. I know that's not allowed in your library. And it was, it, I, it was, I use the F-bomb in a non-pejorative way, if you, can, if, you can, if you can believe that. It was, it was, it was meant as a term of affection. Um, so if you have questions for Tom, uh, write them down and pass them to the ushers, and we'll, um, we'll continue talking, and then we'll get in as many of your questions as we can. You're all right, thank you. Um, can, I just, can I just give a, a quick shout out to Jennifer and Sophie and Tess? I was uh, gonna ask their old, their old man is working hard in uh, uh, representing our country and fighting the good fight in Washington, D.C. But I, under, I understand they're here tonight, so hey guys, I got a nice letter from, uh, from your old man. The Kilmers, ladies and gentlemen, Derek Kilmer, Jennifer, Sophie, and Tess Kilmer. 
Did you, um, do you have other connections with Seattle? Oh, I got the Brian Wheelie connection down right, here. Right, right. There's a daughter Wheelie, uh, a mama Wheelie, and yes, let's all say it together, Papa Wheelie is right over there. <laughs> <laughs> old joke, but uh, the old jokes are the good jokes, as Danny Thomas always used to say. <laughs> Was there a particular story in here that you had more trouble with than others? Or were, are there, are there, or, um, and are there, titles that you still would like to build short stories around? Oh, I, I have. I have a lot of goofy titles that I don't even know what they mean. Um, but they, they, they conjure up something. Um, there was, uh, what, one was Welcome to Mars. Uh, that's a story about uh, 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 father and son surfing at a place called Mars Beach. Um, uh, that has been in my head for a very long time. It, 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 it came about because I, I, I'm, a, I'm a horrible surfer, but I, I do surf on occasions when there aren't too many thugs out in the water who are going to beat me up or scream at me because I get in the way. Um, and I was, I was, uh, I was going, I was, I, was, I was carrying my surfboard on a day where the surf was so lousy, nobody was really out there. And I passed a, uh, I passed a, uh, a car that was, uh, it was a ranchero that had a bunch of tools in the back, uh, like a construction worker getting in a, a few waves before he went off to work. And a guy was behind the, uh, the, is this working? Have I moved this so it doesn't work? Yes, go, go Apollo 13, we have you. Um, love these headsets. Um, and uh, there, was a, there was a guy who was obviously a surfer slash construction worker and there was also a very well-dressed lady, and she was sitting riding shotgun. Oh. And it was early morning, and I just thought, what's going on here? That, that, that yeah. doesn't look like a guy who specifically came out to get some waves. It just had this air of intrigue and romance and illicitness to it. And that, that hung in my head for a long time, which became, uh, grew into one of the, one of the stories. The, uh, every one of them, you, you start off thinking you're going to be examining one aspect of the theme, and it, it takes you down to another place. There's a story that is, has a very simple title called The Special Weekend, which is about a 90-year-old boy having a special weekend with his mom. Uh, his family is divorced. And, and that, if there's any in, anything in there that is sort of based on an autobiographical aspect, oh. it, it's that. My, my parents pioneered the marriage dissolution laws for the state of California. <laughs> It's like famous, there was one famous, Elizabeth Taylor and Joshua Gabor were divorced and Mr. and Mrs. Amos Hanks. That was the, uh, that was the, that was the, the that's those the only people I knew who were divorced in the planet. Um, and there was a lot, I had a lot of confusion. I, I, we all thought this was what life was like, but what started off uh, from the perspective, I think, the, of a nine-year-old boy trying to make yeah. sense out of life really became uh, about his union with his mother and some, some parts of what his mother must have been through. And I, didn't, I wasn't anticipating that when, we started, when I started working on it. But there it went, so much so that I sent it to my siblings and said, look, this isn't us, but you guys might recognize some stuff. And they, I, I heard back from them, oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you gave the name Amos to one of the characters. Um, it's funny, there's a story in there um, and there's a big part of it that no one has picked up on. It's Christmas 1953. Yeah. When um, I've always been fascinated by history and World War II, and we've done an awful lot of works about World War II. Uh, and the, one of the things that has always been a question in my head is how in the world did the guys who survived World War II, who saw their friends killed and also killed people themselves, how did they go back and set up the railroad train around the Christmas tree in 1956? How did they do that? How did they forget? How did they move on? Right. How, I mean, look, I'm still traumatized by the time I drove across the country by myself on the, you know, when I was 21. Oh, it was a fraught four days. <laughs> I had to catch a nap in the parking lot of a Husky self-serve in Nevada. I still remember it as I can probably walk through. And these guys, of course, you know, yeah. they went off and you know, fought and killed. And so there's a story in there about Christmas Eve in 1953, and a fellow gets a phone call every, every night, every Christmas Eve at midnight from a guy that he was in the war. And what particularly happens to them is unique. But the man's, uh, it's, it's Amos Bowling, who is called Bud. Amos is a great name, and my dad hated his name. 
He hated being Amos because guess what everybody asked him as he was growing up? Where is Andy? Exactly. <laughs> wow. He, and so his sister one day said, well, we'll just call you Bud. <laughs> and so for that, he was Bud. He was Bud Hanks. Um, but what no one has picked up in the story be, uh, because of what Virgil, the main character, has gone through, no one has picked up that Amos Bud Bowling, the soldier, is a homosexual, is gay. There's, there's a segment of it in which Virgil, the... the um, oh, oh, the... the, the, yeah, the his right. buddy says he realized early on that women yes. were neither the passion or... What is, I can't remember what the word is. We're not the passion or desire of Bud Bowling. That he just figured out that, oh, he was one of those. Yeah. He's one of those fruits and nuts. That, yeah, which is the way, the, the way they were referred to. But it's funny. No one who's read it has said, so you put a gay veteran in, uh, uh, in, the, battle of, in the Battle of the Bulge. No one's picked up on it. Maybe because it, I'm such a shitty writer that I wasn't getting... <laughs> Maybe I should have made a bigger deal about it. Maybe you should put it in caps. Yes. <laughs> that should have been it. Hey, hey, bud, how are you? Oh, my God, I can, I can smell your lavender aftershave coming through the phone. Could have done something like that. So um, what about, how did you decide on the arrangement of the book? Because... No of the stories in the book, because what I loved about reading this book, and Ruth described it as um, big-hearted, which I, which, I, which I agree in the way that I would also add to that, is that there's such a generosity of spirit toward the characters that it's just such a pleasure to read these different stories and see your, your concern and your love, really, for the for the characters, so thank you for that. Oh, okay. well, but um, right. I can't remember what my question. Your was. question oh, the was arrangement. the arrangement of the arrangement. I'll help you out here, Nancy. Okay, good. You started off asking me about the arrangement of the stories. <laughs> um, and here's here's where, and I had I think an advantage uh, of not caring. I didn't care what the arrangement was yeah. because um, as an actor, I, I as an actor I stopped going to see dailies a long, long time ago. I don't, you know, if they're showing what we shot, oh, can I see the date? A lot of times they don't want you there anyway because it's a, it's a, it's a brutal um, process of watching the mistakes that occurred yesterday. Well, that's terrible. We can't use that. But I used to go and I used to think, oh, I'm so wonderful. <laughs> and that scene is so fantastic. And then you see it in the movie and say, what happened? It's horrible. You are, I'm the least objective person when it comes down to it. So rather than ex re-examine what we did, I leave that to somebody else. Uh, let them figure it out, because I, I can't tell if it's any good or not. Actually, I usually think it's just horrible. Um, and in regards to this, when we put them all together, I said, well, what, I asked Peter, Peter Gathers, what do you think the order should be? And he said, well, I'll, I'll put together an order, and if you don't like it, you can change it. And he sent me an order. I said, fine by me. I, did, I didn't care. Uh, it, I needed somebody else's sense of what the pacing would be right. and how to, how, to, how to parse it out. And I was, I was very pleased. But uh, I, I hand my stuff over to a director and an editor, alters it and changes it and, and moves things around. So that's, that's, I'm perfectly, I was perfectly happy having someone else make that decision. Do you feel that in some way the stories aren't yours anymore, but they're now the reader's stories? Well, that, uh, that, that's... As a, the movies, yeah, I Yeah, that's an extraordinary thing, yeah. Um, uh, they are. I mean, after a while, uh, I actually, if, if I... If you have those, you know, those, those moments of, you know, it's 1.30 in the morning, you can't kind of sleep, and self-confidence is little on the wane, and... You just need a little boost, and so you pick up your book and you read a couple of kick-ass pages. <laughs> I think I'll sleep better now. Close it up. But they all have taken this, this trip. It, it's not unlike, I, I will tell you, it's not unlike... Um, when, when one of the films comes up on the grid, you know, you're kind of going through it or you're walking in the room and, you know, your kids are ragging on you because you made some movie in the 90s that they can't believe your hair looks as stupid <laughs> as it does. And uh, you look at it for a moment and it is a completely out-of-body experience. I don't see the union of the movie left anymore. I only see this collection of moments that I have vague memories of. I can remember... 
Um, I can remember what other people say. I know what the other line, the other, what the other character, I can't remember what I'm doing next, but I can tell you whether or not I had a cold that day, where we had dinner the next night, who I had to pick up at the airport, you know, the night before that we, that we shot that, or details of the house we lived in on Fripp Island in South Carolina or something. That I can tell you. And in, in the same way, I have a, I have a disconnected out-of-body experience, despite how pleased I am with those five kick-ass pages. <laughs> oh, come on, 10. I'll take, I'll take, hey, you heard it. America's Librarian says there's 10 kick-ass pages in that book. I leave it to you to find them. <laughs> so one of my favorite characters in the book is a columnist for a small town newspaper. And his name, will you pronounce it? Hank Fassay. Fassay. Yeah, not okay. Fassay. I, I wasn't sure how to pronounce it. Was it was based on Bill Fassay from the old Oakland Tribune. Remember Bill Fassay? The San Francisco Chronicle had the, cl the greatest three-dot journalist in the history, Herb Cain. Uh-huh. Herb Cain, you remember Herb Cain? Um, I, I started reading Herb Cain in junior high because we would all put a dime in the paper box and take out four copies. <laughs> and then read it on the way to school or stop for donuts on the way to school because we always walked. And so I learned the beauty of this perfectly, perfectly meted out column that was on the front page of the B section next to a big ad for the Macy's. So uh, people timed the cooking of their eggs to reading Herb Cain. <laughs> the Oakland Tribune had a knockoff version of Herb Cain called Bill Fassay, and he oh. tried to did the same thing for the East Bay. And the exciting goings on in San Francisco didn't quite work for Fremont and <laughs> Walnut Creek. But it was our hometown paper, so we read it. So based on that, uh, I wanted to have an old cranky columnist for the, what is it, the Tri-City? Yeah, the Tri-City. Tri-City right. Daily News. Yeah. What are those Tri-Cities? We don't know, yeah, but right. we know there's a Tri-Cities out there, and uh, he's fighting tooth and nail for, uh, for his uh, relevancy in the, in the place. And so he's, uh, he, he was a good guy in order to go back to every now and again. I must have written like 17 columns for Hank Fassay. Uh, but and ended up editing them down and, and connecting some of them because I wanted to essentially be, I wanted it to take up time in the reading experience about as long as you would soft boil an egg. <laughs> so if you're making breakfast, put some egg in some boiling water, read one of the Hank Fassay columns, breakfast is ready. That's just a, another reason. Well, is he kind of, um, you know, he's just so wonderfully grumpy and, and really wanting to... Um, remake the world better. And celebrate the hometown. Because yes. a lot of it is like, why do you gotta know New York? Yeah, yeah right. What, you're not gonna right. get, a, you gotta go to New York for a good bagel? Nonsense. Hinch's Delicatessen has a fine bagel. It's just down on Emory and Fourth. Go down there. You wanna, you wanna, you wanna go see a great museum? Oh, you gotta have to go to the Museum of Modern Art. You know, there's a tractor museum out in, <laughs> uh, out in, out in, and in out in Burnville. You gotta, and it's as good a museum as you're gonna find anywhere. Uh, he likes to, he likes to celebrate the glories of, uh, of whatever those three cities are that are conjoined. It, it, was there a little bit of you in, in, in him that, that kind of, um, well, in any way? I don't know, I, I sort of kept... No, actually, he was, he was, a, he was a, a, a bona fide creation of pure fiction. I wanted, oh. I wanted to create that cantankerous guy who's, you know, is, is not quite so, oh, these newfangled, newfangled, this, you know, the thing. He does, he does, he does type out, he, he writes a, 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 a paragraph yeah, right. about the future of the paper, and then without spell check, he types one out, and it's, of course, it all comes out as gobbledygook on his phone. So he's a little bit of a, he's digging his heels in at the, uh, at the modern era, but he's not nearly, uh, uh, I, I'm not nearly as cranky as, as he did, and I, and I appreciate the bagels in New York City a little bit more than, than he does. <laughs> Who do you read? Like, do you... I know you like Alice Munro. I mean, are there other short story writers that you? Really no, actually, no. There's not. I mean, I, I read the you know the great short stories, uh, the collections. You know, be, you know, nine stories by J.D. Salinger. Welcome to the Monkey House by Kurt Vonnegut, and then some others. I went online and found the unpublished or out of print short stories of. 
J.D. Salinger before he became J.D. Salinger. But I don't, uh, and I, I usually pick up, you know, the, those, those volumes you can get the best essays of the year, yeah. the best sports yeah. writing of the year, the best short stories of the year. I, I read a lot of those, but mostly I read some version of nonfiction, if not bona fide nonfiction. <laughs> I'm reading, I'm reading a book right now that is, I swear to God, it's one of the most hilarious books I've ever read. It's called Everyday Stalinism. <laughs> <laughs> and what it is, is it is all, it's actually kind of dense. It's essentially a collection of what it was like to live under the total, the daily aspects of totalitarianism vis-a-vis -vis communist Russia when Stalin was alive. And everything was affected. Um, even, uh, even I, I remember uh, reading, in, there was an issue of Time Magazine about the Russians, this was in 1980, about these people are totally different from us. They look like us, except their clothes are ugly, their cars don't work. <laughs> And they don't, and their and their 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 alphabet looks like something Bizarro Superman, you know, <laughs> works on all these things. And so I read this thing. Uh, I read it cover to cover, and, and communist life in, in communist Russia ended up fascinating me. And one of the most amazing things about it was they had drinking they had drinking fountains, in which there was a communal glass that sat there. And you took, huh. lined up one by one, took the glass, put it in, put in your Kopeck or what it is, a ruble, press a button, and you would get soda water, bubbly water. And then you would stand there while people were in line and you would drink it. Tovarich. <laughs> ah! And then you would put the glass back in its communal stand and the next pusher would come, take that same glass. First of all, would this happen in the United States of America? Absolutely not. Because like, all the cooties that are in that glass, yeah, right. like, that alone. Wow. But then on top of it, was, what, that glass would have been stolen the day they put the... <laughs> there would have had bands of thieves that would go around to all these things and steal. Hey, you wanna, hey, you want to buy a set of contraband glasses? We stole them from the soda fountain. And I just thought, that is what country, what people have been trained. And, and you know what was the worst faux pas you could commit? Is bringing your own cup. <laughs> I've talked to people who grow up in this, I've asked them, oh yes, yes, they were everywhere. The water was very cheap and it was very good, but you must not bring your own cup. Wow. Because that's not what the great Soviet man did. The Soviet man shared the cup with everybody. So I'm re th this is the kind of stuff that's in everyday Stalinism. Well, how, Can't get enough of it. How did you find that? I mean, what, how did you happen upon oh, that? Oh, I read something. Uh, I read some, some reference to totalitarianism. I read a lot about totalitarianism. And it's in one of the greatest books about And because it's, they're almost like impossible to read because the, they deal with stuff that, oh, who gives a shit about? But when it says, oh, well, this is how they actually lived back then. And this was an example of it. So I'm reading about how rare they got oranges and how they would yeah. line up for oranges and uh, it's, I can't get enough of it, it's fascinating. Well, here's a question from the audience. Bring it on. Um, you'll, love, you'll love this question. I am a typewriter collector too. How many do you have? Does it Doesn't say? say? All right. My favorite is the Corona number three folding typewriter from 1914. Oh, that's a bitch of a typewriter, but what? yeah, I know that. <laughs> What is your favorite typewriter? Well, Tom first of all, Hanks? if you have a Corona folding, you know, that was literally one of the reasons it came out because it was made for World War I. So they were made for correspondence and whatnot to take a small typewriter and the carriage folds out. It's literally, you fold it up and then there's the keyboard, there's carriage. It's a rickety little machine. You can hardly really type on it now. But it was, hey man, it was a new iPad in 1914. Uh, it was a big deal. Uh, I, I have some of those, those are objects of art. I, I, I go back and forth on this a lot, but if you, if you want to get just one of the greatest typewriters, I, I, would, I would say it's the Chevy Impala of typewriters, a car that is a typewriter that will work forever and everybody will think it's beautiful and it'll last a thousand years. Get any uh, Smith Corona, Corona, that was before they, they merged with Smith. Get any Smith Corona, a silent, super silent, uh, uh, Clipper or Sterling, and that is a typewriter that will go a thousand years. I think my, the, the greatest, my most favorite go-to typewriter is probably gonna be a Hermes 3000, 
uh, which is big enough to be a desktop and also happens, um, also happens to be. Uh, help me out here. Who, who, who wrote the last picture show? And uh, Larry McMurtry. Larry McMurtry wrote all of his novels and all of his screenplays on a Hermes 3000. So the Hermes 3000. Now let me tell you just a little thing about collecting typewriters. It's not the first typewriter that you get, because by and large, everybody should have a typewriter. Everybody should use a typewriter. Because if you send, if you send a letter, if you want to send a letter to your love that you, he or she will keep forever, type it. Because no one throws away a typewritten letter. And it will last as long as words are chiseled into stone. Everyone should have a typewriter. Thank you for your mercy applause, I appreciate that. But no one needs a second typewriter. Unless you are insane. <coughs> so it's the second typewriter you get that, that trips you up into a realm that, uh, that starts driving the kids mad and, and wonder, Dad, are we supposed to bury you with these things? What are, what are we going to do with them? What did, how did you answer that question? Uh, the answer was no, I'll give them away before you have to do that. I, I will not burden you with my vices. Uh, well, where, how did the typewriter collecting come about? Mostly, it was, I think it was a need for order in my life, uh, and my penmanship is horrible, and uh, I, did, I knew how to type, and there was something about the design and the functionality, and, the, and, and the, the, this is weird, but when you type, <laughs> when you type, you are not applying words onto paper. You are stamping them into the paper. You are dyeing the fibers, if you have a good paper with a good rag content, you are literally dyeing the fibers with the letter. So you are actually creating a three-dimensional artistic document that is equal to the layers of oil paint on a, on a, on a Van Gogh masterpiece. <laughs> so even if you're just saying, writing a note, to a friend who had you over for dinner last night and you're just writing, Cubby, did I get too drunk or what? <laughs> Your wife makes one F um, at star <laughs> exclamation port ING, good pumpkin pie. I'll be back next year. Love ya, T. That is a three-dimensional, one-of-a-kind painting that cannot be duplicated by anybody on the planet Earth. And so therefore, it's a work of art, uh, worthy of being hung up in uh, some of the lesser museums in the, in the Seattle-Tacoma Seattle, in the, Tacoma in area. In the Tri-Cities. Yeah. I also view it, every, a typewriter is not unlike a guitar in which if it hangs on a wall, all it has is six strings and it's made out of wood. But if you take it down, put it in tune and compose on it, you can change the world. Now you can do that with a pen, and you can do that with a computer, I know, but uh, they don't make as cool a noise. Um, so, I, I, here's another question. I'm a fan of yours and of Nora Ephron. Please talk about Because of Nora oh, okay. in your book's dedication. Sure. Okay, yeah, Good yeah. question. Um, uh, Nora, I, when we made a little movie called Sleepless in Seattle. <laughs> yes, thank you. Look, I, I, I just, I want to confess to being quite the mercenary because I have not been back to Seattle since we reshot two days of that in whatever year Sleepless. I know, I, I, it's just, hey, I'm sorry, you know, I wanted to come. <laughs> I wanted to come up and see the ball field and the whole bit, but I just, you know, hey, I'm busy. I got four kids. Shut up. Leave me alone. Um, uh, when we were, um, when we started working on it, um, I, I only knew Nora through the legend that was Nora. I never met her. And she had directed a movie with Julie Kavner about a lady becoming a stand-up comedian that I really greatly appreciated. One of the reasons was because it had an actually geographically correct moving montage in it, you know, it, it, they, actually, they actually did it by, by the map. And so when, 
when she, I had read the, I had read the screenplay that she and her sister Delia had written, and we started meeting. And I was, I, I, I had a big head. I was, you know, I'd been on a run. You know, I was a hot shot, and uh, I was meeting her. She wasn't meeting me. I was meeting her. You know, it was one of these kind of things. And we, we, we started talking. And I complained about aspects of the, of the script, one of them being from the perspective of she and her sister were writing about a father and his son. And I said, you chicks don't know shit. <laughs> oh, oh, my son, he doesn't want me to go away. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? I, I don't want to disappoint him. I, I so want to, I said, men don't do that. <laughs> You know what men say? Oh, you don't want me to go away this weekend with some lady? You don't want me to? Well, I'm going, you little brat. What do you think of that? You're going to stay with the babysitter, and I'm going. And you know why? You know why dad's going away with the girl that he knows? Because your dad's going to get laid this weekend. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> and both Nora and Delia said, well, put that in. Say that. <laughs> And I said, well, wait a minute. I mean, and, and they ended up constructing a thing in which that, that <laughs> idea is said, not, not quite that. I, I, you know, you'd have to call child services if you heard that right. kind of conversation going on between uh, uh, a man and a But we, we sort of put that in, and we did, we did that in a number other of other uh, places in the movie. And when it, when it finally came out and we were talking about it, I said, oh, that stuff really worked. And Nora said the most amazing thing to me that no one had ever said before, um, not a collaborator, collaborator like that. She said, well, you wrote that. I said, no, 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 no. I, I complained during rehearsal. I didn't wrote it. No, no, you wrote that. You came up with it. You talked about it. In the, it's in the movie. I said, well, you guys wrote it and put it in the scene. We typed it. That is, and she, she explained to me, that is what writing is, even though I wasn't sitting down and trying to do it. And from that, we ended up having a relationship in which she was, and she's done this with many people, not just myself. She has gone out of her way to find people who were writers and called them, cold called them and said, I'm Nora Ephron. If you're in New York, I'd like to have lunch with you wow. because you are a writer. Uh, and she did that with me in, in all of the stuff that we were, um, all the stuff that we were working on or coming close to working on, we exchanged uh, we exchanged uh, all of our material and we approached it. She, she didn't treat me as an actor who was looking for a project. She treated me as a writer that was going to try to examine a theme. When I actually did my, uh, I wanted to write something very specifically. I wanted to, my makeup man, Danny Strepek, who's a legend in the makeup uh, community, um, when we finished a uh, classic motion picture, and please hold your applause, uh, The Da Vinci Code, please hold your applause. Um, <laughs> He had been, uh, he had, uh, he, he, we, we, worked, we worked together. We made like 12 or 15 movies together. And he called me when he was, he said, kid, I'm 75 years old and I'm calling you dad because I want you to be the first one to hear this from the horse's mouth. I'm done. <laughs> and I'm not just done, I am done, done. I said, so you're hanging up. Yep, I'm never going to get up at 5.45 again in the morning. I said, okay, I get it. And I thought, and I thought about it. I said, Danny, could I, could I try to like put together a retrospective of both you and your life and the time that we spent together? So I, I, tried, I, wrote, I wrote a thing about Danny uh, and I sent it to Nora with the question of, is this a thing? That's a, <laughs> you, and you can always just say, it's better to say that than say, listen, I've really thought about it and I put together this piece and I'm trying to examine blah, blah, blah. Read it and tell me what you, it's easy. Hey, is this a thing? <laughs> Because that question will always prompt at least a read of a paragraph or two of what you've written. And if they like it, and it's a thing, they read the whole thing and then they tell you. Uh, if you're actually saying, would you read this 44 page thing? And then they'll put it on a side, they'll never get around to reading it. Um, but uh, she said, yes, yes, this should go into the New York Times style section, not a Sunday style section, but a Thursday style section. <laughs> Uh, I will make the calls in order to try to make that happen, but here's what you need to do. You need to tell the people what you're going to tell them, and then you need to tell them, and then you need to tell the people that you have told them what you wanted to tell them. And this doesn't do that yet. <laughs> and then I went back and took that advice and did it a bunch, and then she says, this is better, but voice, 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 voice which meant, meant that the information is there, but there's no voice, there's no, right. there's, no, there's no sense of the narrative in it. 
And that, that lesson alone uh, powered it all the, I've all, never forgotten those key, those key lessons. I do some version of it all, and I always think of what, what would Nora think of this, and every time I fly to New York City, I think, oh great, I'm gonna get to talk to Nora, and we don't get to. We, uh, we, made, we, did a, we did her play on Broadway called Lucky Guy, and uh, oh, thank you very much. Uh, if you saw that, that was great. My question would be, what month did you see it? Because I had no idea what I was doing for two months of that run. Um, but uh, that was the last kind of like really great grasp I had to work at, would work with her as a, a person with a sense of writing as well as the, the desire to perform it. So it's because of Nora that I wrote this book. Um, do you and the fortune I will make on it. <laughs> Everybody's asking me, hey, Tom, what are you going to do with all that short story money? <laughs> uh, buy a set of snow tires, I guess. <laughs> so you have this project of reuniting people with lost objects? <laughs> okay, yeah. Oh, my... My Your Instagram, social, my world-altering yeah. Instagram right. feed, yeah. So how, where did that, how did that come about? Um, because it is related to typewriters in a way. I mean, it seems to me it comes out of the same impulse of... Uh, the, the, the source of a story that has, you know, perhaps a beginning and an end, and yet there it is. It's, uh, I think, lost gloves are kind of like, right. you know, they're, they're, they're like, they're in stasis somehow. Um, uh, I, the, the, I, I think they're kind of hilarious because who, how do you lose a glove? I mean, you know, how do you drop that? Are you I kidding? Mean, well, I understand that it happens. <laughs> but, I, but I always think, Sorry. I always think a person, you know, is absentmindedly, you know, they're, they're walking, they're walking down, oh, Jesus. So they put on a glove and they're thinking about something else. And then they got that glove and they're thinking about something else and they, uh, Shit, I lost a glove. <laughs> and who is that person? And what about the baby who lost a little booty off its thing? What are the, one of the things that you see all over, particularly New York or any time, place there, 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 a lot of people go, pacifiers. <laughs> pacifiers. And can you imagine if you're a dad, you out walk with the kid, you come back and the plug is missing? Where's his nook? <laughs> Where is his nook? How can you lose the nook? You lost the plot, you lost the nook. Where is it? I, honey, I don't know, I don't, I don't know. And you see, they're, they're, they're laid around like, uh, like, uh, like, like, like clues of the Illuminati. You will find, a, you know, you'll find, a, find, a, find the child's babysitter, uh, the, 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 the pacifier by the reservoir, go in the direction that the nipple is pointing and you will, you'll find that. And, uh, I, you know, by and large, I don't trust anybody who is constantly promoting their new product or, or what have you on Instagram, but something about a lost glove seems pretty benign, you know. And sometimes it's their glove, you know. Oh, shit, that's my, that's my lime green ski glove, and I did walk through Central Park. I hope it's still there. Sometimes it is. Um, so, a question. Um, did you read The Da Vinci Code before you started filming it? All right. That's a, that's a cheap shot, whoever. That's a goddamn, that is a friggin' cheap shot you just took at me. Yes, I did, and it was a page turner. I, I, blew, I blew through it, and then called the guy, said, you, you guys wanna do this? Let me tell you, let me tell you something, Nancy. Okay. And whatever, and whatever son of a bitch wrote that question on this. Selfishly, by and large, selfishly, all, all movies are a blast to make. It's, no matter how hard or how tired or how emotional or how crazy it may drive you, it's a really great hang. It's the best job you can have because there's a certain amount of downtime, there's a routine to it, you have coffee in the morning in the hair and makeup trailer, you talk about the day, then you go up and you pound it, pound it, pound it, pound it, pound it, and every now and again, you have, we, you, you're not needed for 45 minutes. And on the Da Vinci Code, you son of a bitch, <laughs> we were shooting in Paris, France, in the Louvre. 
the Louvre. And you know what? The Louvre wanted us to shoot in the Louvre. We didn't have to ask permission. They said, if you are going to make this movie in Paris, you must, uh, you must shoot in the Louvre, no? Yes, we must. So I am in the Louvre, and me and, uh, me and uh, Audrey Tattoo are running around just trying to find that code. <laughs> you know, doing that, which is a blast. It is so much fun. We're on this, you know, high, high tech Parisian scavenger hunt to find out what the hell that Da Vinci meant by all of this. And, um, and we had 45 minutes off. And here's the thing, I was, the next scene was I was going to have to run. And because I was going to have to run, I had to change uh, my pants and my shoes because there's a lot of reasons, costumes, this, that. So I, in a room all by myself, on an apple box, which got out, stripped down to my underwear, socks, then I, and you know what was right there? The Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa. <laughs> it was three o'clock in the morning. There were only 40 people in the Louvre and they were making this movie, it was just off, and I sat there and said, you know what, babe? <laughs> I gotta tell you, man, it's so great to be here just with you because I bet, I bet during the day you got nothing but cameras pointed at you and trying to figure this out. I had a conversation with the Mona Lisa while I was changing my pants. And that's why I did the fucking movie. What do you think of that? <laughs> <laughs> so I actually saw now, there's a lot of truth to what I just said. <laughs> Do you, can we expect another collection of short stories? I mean, those titles and, and or, or are you moving on to oh, a novel? Oh, oh no, I, I wouldn't. Uh, no, I, I honestly, I, I, I have, I, I didn't have any plans to do this. And I can't say that I do, but I, I, I um, because a lot of questions is, why'd you do this in the first place? And the, and the answer really is just a fire in the belly. There are, um, my, the, I have the greatest job in the world. Um, and part of it is because the Mona Lisa and the hang that goes along with it. But also is it, uh, also I'm constantly together with really smart men and women who are, are trying to uh, divine um, order and connectedness in this world. And they do it, they're doing it through stories that we either watch or read or hear or write. And they are all creating them. Um, and it, 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 some part of it is ad hoc. You have to, you have to trust serendipity. That, that alliance that you make is actually one that, that spurs everybody. You start off with a kernel of an idea and it becomes just bigger and bigger in concentric circles. Sometimes you are adapting a story that already exists, and, but more often than not, you just, somebody read a thing or heard about a thing and you just, you just wanna delve into it. I've never been able to have a, have a, have a plan about what that, who is gonna be part of that alliance or what the kernel of the idea is going to be. Because as soon as you want to make a movie about coal miners, you specifically about the injustice that coal miners feel, well, then, then you're corralling your talents into, towards a specific desire, as opposed to uh, the, the, what's the word, uh, the, you know, the, an inspiration that is gonna come out of left field that you never anticipated. Um, and this is what we, this is what we do to have the office. Because a lot of times we have, we come across stories and says the only way to do justice and honor to the story is as a documentary. We can't make this stuff up. You just got to go find the people and, 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 and find them and have them talk to you and, and, and help divine the story from them. Um, so I, you know, uh, I did not, <clears throat> I did not start off saying, hmm, you know what would be really great to do? 
drive myself crazy for three years and bang out 17 stories. I never, I never thought of that, but the, it, when the first one came, three more came, and then five more came along, and I, I ha I'm always seeing something out my window that, that prompts me along, and I'll, I, I'm lucky in that I'm, I'm able to, uh, uh, to have learned just enough from all the, all the I mean, I, I went to Chabot Junior College for two years and Sac State for one. Uh, I am, uh, there you go. Um, I, uh, uh, I've only learned by reading and thinking and pondering and being challenged by experience that come along. So all I can say, boy, I really hope so because it was, uh, um, it's, uh, <clears throat> none of those stories would have existed unless one, they, somebody asked me to do them and two, uh, I didn't sit down and, uh, and, and, and play with them. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, it's kind of, it is just kind of, it is kind of play. Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, I, I, I'm, not gonna, I'm, I'm gonna drop a name here, and please forgive me, all right? All right. Bruce, Bruce Springsteen. Um, <clears throat> I, I sort of know Bruce. I've done enough television shows with him, uh, Saturday Night Live and David Letterman and a few others. And uh, I, I hung around with him, and over the course of a number of years, uh, over dinners and whatnot, he has told stories about um, growing up, you know, Jersey, the whole bit. And he, I realized when I read his absolutely on fire, magnificent uh, autobiography, that I heard those stories before he wrote them. <laughs> Literally word for word, verbatim, punchlines, setup, dramatic structure to it. And uh, he, <laughs> he does that with his songs and his music in such a way, it's no surprise that he does it on, on, on paper as well in the stories. And um, if, I always just think, even when I ever saw him, is if I, can, if I can come just barely close enough in order to have a version of my own that is <clears throat> like Darkness Sounds You Have the Town is a song, or other books that, uh, other places where you go and, and, uh, and, and you read, you say, if I could just come this close to being like, uh, forgive me the pronunciation, Chaim Potok. Chaim Potok. Chaim Potok, who wrote My, uh, my Name is Asher Lev, a few others. <clears throat> if I can just barely touch on uh, Alan First, the great novelist about espionage, or Philip Carr, Kerr, excuse me, or Sarah Vowell, or uh, Ada Calhoun, or anybody, if I could just come close to, to, to telling a story with such verve and acumen, um, I'll be better than just a guy who could be funny at a dinner party. So I hope to have the chance to, and that's what oh. I'll be aiming for. Tom Hanks, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. That was Tom Hanks at Seattle Arts and Lectures in December 2017. This was Sal On Air, a podcast featuring some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 30 years of Seattle arts and lectures. Support for the inaugural season of Sal On Air comes from the MJ Murdoch Charitable Trust. To hear more from Sal On Air, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more conversation and connection, join us for our 2018-19 season, featuring talks by Alice Walker, Barbara Kingsolver, Doris Kearns Goodwin, and more literary surprises. Tickets are available now at lectures.org. Our show is produced by Jack Straw Cultural Center. Special thanks to the Seattle Arts and Lectures staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to Daniel Spills for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Ruth Dickey, and this has been another edition of Sal on Air from Seattle Arts and Lectures.